My fervent hope is that Brett Kavanaugh will work to lessen the divisions in the Supreme Court. <laughs> Good luck with that, lady. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. First day here on Planet Earth. I got the feeling that something right. Welcome to it. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Good Lord. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From the Pacifica Radio Network, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WTPA, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's. AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day. On the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today on a pretty tough day. I'm not sure who originally uh, wrote this one on Twitter, but someone sent it to me, and it seems apropos today. Quote, on my next job interview, I'm going to use the Kavanaugh method. Start off by yelling, tell them how much I like beer, ask them rude questions, and cry. Yep, that sounds about right. Seems like that'll work. That does sound about what we saw in the Senate, yep. Uh, as we go to air here today, it, uh, it, it looks all but official at this point. Judge Brett Kavanaugh, despite multiple sexual assault allegations against him, despite multiple provable lies, perjury to the U.S. Senate under oath, which is a felony, uh, during his original testimony and in response to uh, his testimony in response to his accuser, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, Despite his intemperate, conspiratorial, and highly partisan responses to Professor Ford, despite all of that, it appears that uh, Kavanaugh will become the fifth Republican on the U.S. Supreme Court, cementing the GOP's blatantly stolen majority on that high court, stolen when they refused for more than 300 days to even meet with Barack Obama's nominee to the uh, court, Merrick Garland, And uh, thus, finally, we'll be able to apply far-right, corporate-sponsored Republican interpretations, and I put that in quotes, of the nation's laws on everything from civil rights to abortion to the environment and much more. And that will be for decades to come. 
at least as everything stands right now as we go to air. The four remaining undecided senators, Republicans, Jeff Flake of Arizona, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Susan Collins of Maine, and Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia, they have all now declared how they will vote when Kavanaugh faces his final vote in the U.S. Senate on Saturday. Um, I should note we are going to air here on Friday before that final vote. Of those uh, four, only Republican Lisa Murkowski has said that she would vote against Kavanaugh, charging in what the New York Times describes today as an, uh, quote, emotional, impromptu speech to reporters outside her Senate chamber that she has, quote, been wrestling to really try to know what is fair and what is right. And that, quote, none of this has been fair. She said ultimately she recognized that, quote, we need to have institutions that are viewed as fair. And if uh, people who are victims, people who feel that there is no fairness in our system of government, particularly in our courts, then you've gone down a path that is not good and right for this country. She said, quote, I believe we're dealing with issues right now that are bigger than the nominee and that while she believes Brett Kavanaugh is a good man, she, uh, he's not the right man for the court at this time. She says that has truly been the most difficult evaluation of a decision that I have ever had to make and that we're at a place where we need to begin thinking about the credibility and integrity of our institutions. Begin thinking about that, Madam Senator? That ship sailed long ago, I'm afraid. Uh, nonetheless, I'm glad she has finally noticed. So uh, she is among those for the one no vote. For their part, Flake Collins Manchin, uh, a Democrat who is up for re-election this year in the Trumpiest state in the union, that would be West Virginia, which went to Trump by 42 points in 2016. Nonetheless, he is leading his Republican challenger there by nearly 10 points, just one month out from the midterm election, according to multiple polls. Collins is not running again in Maine until 2020. Flake is retiring this year. Some have speculated that he might want to run against Donald Trump in a GOP primary in 2020, though it is not clear to me, at least, how voting with the president here on this issue and, yes, pretty much everything else that Trump has supported legislatively, not clear how uh, that is going to distinguish this guy from Donald Trump in a GOP primary. As I said, we're recording how, uh, today's show, uh, however, on, on Friday, so I suppose something could happen between today and Saturday's final vote in the Senate to change things, but that appears very unlikely at this point. Uh, but I just want to mention that for those who may be listening to today's show over the weekend or even on Monday, some of our affiliates will be carrying us uh, on Monday morning. Uh, and so, hey, uh, from those listening to us in the future... Uh, if anything has changed, please let us know. Uh, feel free to email me, bradcast at bradblog.com, to let me know how things worked out. Yeah, and if you build that time machine, let me know. I'd like to get in there. I got some stuff to do. I, I know you do. Uh, Des, uh, Desi Doyen, our producer, your, uh, your thoughts today on, uh, on these four senators and what now looks all but certain to be Kavanaugh's confirmation for a lifetime appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, I think it's a horrible situation for our Supreme Court to be in. 
win now. I think that uh, the votes of uh, of Manchin and Collins and Flake have shown that Republicans, number one, really do not care about women. They really do not care about sexual assault survivors. They really do not care about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court or the fact, as Murkowski herself mentioned, that victims before the court will not feel like our court system is fair, that they can get a fair and impartial hearing. I think that that is extremely damaging to the legacy of the court for a generation. And I, I note, by the way, you said uh, you, you referred to Manchin there as a republic as um, one of the Republicans. Yeah. In fact, he's a Democrat. Well, it's right. hard to know no, these you're days. Right. You're right. But to be fair, he is a Democrat. Yeah. Press on. And I understand, yeah. you know, the political calculation that he made. But, you know, there was a part of me that thought that, hey, maybe these four people, if none other, if no others, these four people might, just might, have the moral courage, like Senator Heidi Heitkamp did yesterday, who was also in a political battle uh, for her re-election She's in North Dakota. She's a Democrat in a, a very Democrat, Republican state. But she had the moral courage to say, this is not right. This is not okay. And uh, I'm saddened to see that Manchin and Collins and Flake did not. Uh, Senator uh, Collins, and by the way, you say you can understand uh, Manchin's political political calculation. calculation. I can't understand his political calculation. He is leading his uh, very, very uh, Trumpy opponent there, the Attorney General, what, Pat uh, Pat Morrissey, the Attorney General, uh, by 10 points. And so, no, you know, I, I... it I guess seems. as a political uh, consideration, I guess I could understand it. But, you know, yeah, you mentioned Heidi Heitkamp. Her her race is much closer in a very Republican state. Uh, Claire McCaskill, senator from Missouri, she is she's actually losing currently, according to polls, a very tight race in Missouri. She'll be voting against Kavanaugh. So, no, I'm, I'm not quite as uh, forgiving of or oh, understanding. Oh, oh. I know, I know okay. you're not forgiving. I'm not quite <laughs> yeah. as understanding of uh, Manchin's uh, uh, political considerations here. Uh, just switch parties. Just, you know, switch to run as a Republican if that's how you want to vote. That said, people considering voting against him in fury in West Virginia, I would understand that as well. Though keep in mind, um, as a Democrat, he does caucus with the Democrats and um, taking back control of the Democrat uh, of, the, of the Senate by Democrats, I believe, is key to putting the brakes on our national emergency, as I've said over and over again. So if I lived in West Virginia, uh, it would be a very um, well, no, I was going to say it'd be a very tough vote. It wouldn't be a tough vote at this point. I would still vote for uh, for Joe Manchin. Uh, it's it's a, it's simple math. Whoever has control of the Senate has control of the legislation that goes forward and has control over whether or not Donald Trump gets a third nominee to the Supreme Court. Most people may not be aware that the oldest conservative on the Supreme Court right now is Clarence Thomas. He is 70. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 85. Yeah, and they are both very likely in the next two years uh, to leave the court. And so it's not just the Supreme Court, by the way. Uh, The Senate also controls uh, nominations to the federal bench, other lifetime appointments to the federal bench. And there's scores of them to be filled. The Republicans can't wait and Donald Trump can't wait to continue filling those. The only way to stop that, the only way to stop another uh, Brett Kavanaugh, 
on the Supreme on the uh, on the lower courts, the lower federal courts is by Democrats taking back control of the Senate, whether they will stand up and vote against these people. That's another question. But it's a question that we don't even get to ask that we don't even it's a fight. We don't even get to fight if the Democrats don't take back uh, control. Yeah. I mean, so if you are in a state that has a U.S. Senate race going on right now, it really is important to consider the strategy of your vote, um, because this is going to be about who holds the Senate majority for the next two years, because only if Democrats have the majority in the Senate can they block Trump from gutting Social Security and Medicare, which Republicans have already said they're going to do. Only if Democrats have the Senate majority can the, we have any chance of having any kind of climate change legislation going forward. So Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, by the way, Kavanaugh in his previous rulings on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has made it very clear he does not believe that federal agencies have the authority to regulate pollution and climate change and carbon emissions. So any action has to come through legislation. And that is going to be how the Senate majority is the linchpin of pretty much everything else going forward from here. So even if you hate the Democrat, maybe consider about whether (laughs) the Senate majority is important enough to earn your vote. Yeah, and let me add, uh, you know, it's Matt. When we're talking about this, we're not talking about this because we're partisans. We're not talking about this because we we love the Democratic Party. Uh, we don't. I, I, I'll yeah, not speak definitely. for uh, Des. I'll I'll just oh, talk I for myself. I I don't. And uh, Des, you and I were speaking uh, before the show here today about uh, people voting third party. Um, and, you know, and I was discussing, I, I, we never, you know, tell anyone how they uh, should or shouldn't vote when it comes to making selections uh, in your own state. But what we try to do is inform people about the cost of the vote. And in this case, um, of course, it depends where you live. It depends what the race is. But, uh, you know, the idea of, of voting third party because you hate the Democrats uh, fine, but you know, just be be aware what happens, what comes of your vote. I know a lot of people voted third party in uh, in the 2016 election. I don't begrudge them that, and I fight for those people and their right to vote and their right to have their vote counted, counted accurately, etc. Uh, whether it's for a third party, whether it's for the Republican Party, but please know what the results of your vote might be. And right now. Uh, The results of the vote in 2016 is that we are now looking at decades, generations of pain, frankly. Uh, That is the result of that vote and that we are going to feel on uh, coming from the Supreme Court uh, for generations at this point, long after Donald Trump is gone from the White House. Especially when it comes to climate change. Susan Collins, uh, her argument uh, that she has been, uh, she was bullied uh, and that the left was somehow conspiring in some fashion against this poor man, Brett Kavanaugh, who, by the way, if he wasn't con- uh, uh, confirmed, uh, you know, the claim that uh, he, he would have his life ruined, his life would be ruined by retaining his lifetime appointment to the second highest court in the land if he was not confirmed to the Supreme Court. He sits on the federal appeals court in in uh, D.C. I with, wish with I wish Merrick Garland with by the Merrick way. Garland. Yeah. But I wish someone would ruin my life that way, frankly. <laughs>
give me a lifetime appointment to the courts. Uh, here was uh, Susan Collins uh, explaining uh, some of the reasons for her vote. She uh, spoke uh, a long speech on the Senate floor on Friday outlining her defense uh, in deciding to vote to confirm Kavanaugh. She did not mention Dr. Ford, by the way, until about 40 minutes into her 45-minute speech. In closing here, Collins actually said she hoped that Kavanaugh would lessen the divisions in the Supreme Court. My fervent hope is that Brett Kavanaugh will work to lessen the divisions in the Supreme Court so that we have far fewer 5-4 decisions and so that public confidence in our judiciary and our highest court is restored. Mr. President, I will vote to confirm Judge Kavanaugh. Thank you, Mr. President. So I don't know. That was Susan Collins today. I don't know what planet she is living on that she somehow thinks this is going to lessen the divide on the Supreme Court or in this country at this point. Um, yeah, but that was uh, that was at least part of Susan Collins of Maine, her reasoning. Um, it seems that uh, Manchin, uh, for his part, and Murkowski essentially decided they could just swap votes. Uh, he would vote in favor. She would vote against. Uh, and that that would not cost either of them very much because Kavanaugh would uh, likely still be confirmed, as uh, seems to be what is happening now. Uh, meanwhile, Kavanaugh's groveling, unprecedented op-ed on Thursday night, where else in the Rupert Murdoch-owned uh, Wall Street Journal was headlined, I am an independent, impartial judge. Uh, and, and this comes after he, uh, you know, he gave his interview, where else, to Fox News, pleading, uh, pleading his case like no other Supreme Court justice has ever done. Uh, but his op-ed, to my ears, sounded like a, a classic abuser, uh, writing, uh, I was very emotional last Thursday. More so than I've ever been. I might have been too emotional at times. I know that my tone was sharp and I said a few things I should not have said. I hope everyone can understand that I was there as a son, a husband, and a dad. Going forward, you can count on me to be the same kind of judge and person I have been for my entire 28-year legal career. Of course, that's what I'm concerned about. But, uh, you know, never mind that no potential justice in the history of our country has ever had to take to the op-eds uh, like this at Wall Street Journal or anywhere else. Uh, it sounded to me like a classic abuser. I'm sorry. I drank too much last night. I yelled too much. It'll you made never, you made yeah. me yell at you. You made me hit you. I won't do it again. I promise. Yeah, yeah. right. Well... Uh, that sure is uh, what it sounded like. Um, meanwhile, uh, today, uh, well, more than we talked about it on the previous show, 2,400 law professors have now signed a New York Times op-ed uh, charging that following his ranting response to Ford that it's clear Kavanaugh does not have the judicial temperament to sit on the bench. One of those law professors will join us here momentarily. 
Uh, the American Bar Association, which had previously given Kavanaugh their highest marks, they said they were reevaluating that assessment on Friday. So we'll see what they come out with uh, if it's before the final vote on Saturday, though I suspect Republicans and Joe Manchin will ignore that as well, even though Susan Collins, in her speech on why she was voting for him, actually cited the previous ABA recommendation, which they appear to be pulling back at this point. Uh, three college drinking buddies of Kavanaugh from uh, Yale University came out in a Washington Post op-ed to explain that Brett Kavanaugh was out and out lying in his testimony to the uh, U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. And these were people that had not previously opposed him until then. Uh, nonetheless, that's where we are. Um, uh, I don't have time to go into those details because uh, I need to get to my guest here. Um, but what, so, you know, speaking of not having enough time, what was the Republican panic all about to get Kavanaugh seated as quickly as they had to? There's been a lot of speculation about that, including, uh, one upcoming Supreme court case that some are citing to say that it might help Donald Trump keep himself and his associates and his family from ever facing accountability for anything. Fordham University law professor Jed Sugarman joins us next to discuss that case, double jeopardy and gamble versus United States and how Kavanaugh's presidents, pre presidents, presence on the high court may or may not affect this particular case. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. I see what you did there. Jeopardy. Got it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You'll get, get it in a second as well. Uh, over the past several weeks, there has been a lot of opinion analysis and often, uh, frankly, just guesswork as to why Senate GOPers have been in such an unprecedented, mad hurry to get their man, Brett Kavanaugh, confirmed. Come hell or high water or sexual assault allegation or uh, injudicial temperament into what had been the Republican swing vote seat on the U.S. Supreme Court, previously occupied by the now-retired Justice Anthony Kennedy. All along, I have been arguing on this show that it really has little more to do with the fact that there is an election coming up in uh, just now about a month in which Republicans could, not likely, but could end up losing their very slim 51-49 majority in the U.S. Senate. And if so, I have argued, 
Democrats would certainly be within their rights at this point to do anything and everything to keep any Trump nominee from being seated on the court for the next two years until after the next presidential election. That in response to the Republicans' shameful and unprecedented treatment of Judge Merrick Garland, Barack Obama's nominee to fill the seat vacated by Justice Scalia back in 2016. Garland was never granted a hearing, much less a vote in the in the U.S. Senate as the uh, Republicans held that seat open for more than a year so that it could be stolen by them uh, along with the court's right wing majority for Trump's first nominee, Neil Gorsuch. N uh, not that Democrats would actually have the courage to do that, but in my opinion, it would have been the right thing to do. And Republicans know that that is exactly what they would do if the situation were reversed. So they have been in a panic to avoid that possibility all along, at least as I see it. Others, however, believe that the rush is um, so that still more facts about Kavanaugh's background as a partisan Republican operative or even as a belligerent drunk during his high school and college days uh, would further prove his unsuitability for a lifetime appointment to the nation's highest court. And others still believe that it has to do with some of the cases that the Supreme Court is set to hear this term now that they are back in session as of the first of this month. We've cited on this show and on our Green News report the case of Weyerhaeuser versus U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, a challenge to parts of the Endangered Species Act in which the mining and timber industries really, really hope to see a part of that act gutted which would have a huge effect on their bottom line. That case, I believe, has now been heard by a split 4-4 four to four court on October 1, the court's first day of the term. So Kavanaugh will at least have no say on that one at this point. The FBI's brief and reportedly extraordinarily constrained probe into some of the multiple allegations of sexual assault against him helped blow past that deadline, at least, for Republicans. In recent weeks, however, another case to be heard shortly by the court has been cited by a number of Donald Trump opponents as the reason for the GOP panic to get Kavanaugh seated on the bench as absolutely quickly as possible. It's one that some have argued will have an effect on special counsel Robert Mueller's probe into Team Trump and the effect of a potential Donald Trump pardon for his close associates, his own family members, and maybe even himself when it comes to similar charges that could be brought by prosecutors at the state level, even if Trump issues those pardons in response to federal indictments by Mueller. In other words, Donald Trump is trying to save himself and his associates and his family by assuring that Kavanaugh is on the bench in time to offer a favorable five to four opinion in this particular case. Over at Slate.com, however, this past week, legal experts Terry Canefield and Jed Sugarman write, the upcoming Supreme Court case, Gamble versus United States, has fueled speculation that Republicans are pushing for a favorable outcome in order to free Trump to issue pardons of his associates without fear that they will face consequences from state prosecutors. While the case centered on the question of double jeopardy is an important one, there is no reason to worry that Gamble will jeopardize the Mueller probe. 
Canefield and Sugarman Wright, arguing that Gamble v. U.S. is not actually about the presidential pardon power. So if it's not about that, what is it about, and why are so many on the left citing that case as a potential explanation for the panic to seat Brett Kavanaugh? Joining us now for such an explanation is one of the authors of that Slate article. Jed Sugarman is a Fordham Law School professor, legal historian, regular contributor at Slate.com and at his own blog, SugarBlog.com, and author of The People's Court, Pursuing Judicial Independence in America. Well, good luck with that one, Mr. Sugarman. Uh, He's also the co-author of an amicus brief, along with a number of other historians, in the constitutional emoluments litigation filed by Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, otherwise known as Crew. Mr. Sugarman, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Oh, great. Well, thank you for having me. I, uh, I should uh, state again here that we are speaking, you and I, on Friday after the uh, procedural vote on Kavanaugh in the U.S. Senate, uh, after Collins and Flake have said they will vote in favor of Kavanaugh, but before the final confirmation vote on uh, Saturday, in which it now looks all but certain that Kavanaugh will, in fact, be seated on the Supreme Court but we're not in uh, Kansas anymore. Things can change very quickly around here. And uh, who knows where we'll be by the time some of our listeners will hear our conversation today. That said, uh, before we get to the uh, to the gamble case very quickly, um, if it's not uh, that, if it's not the gamble case, do you have any opinions on why this absolute panic by Republicans to seat Kavanaugh on the court as absolutely quickly as possible? Uh, I, I, I think the best explanation is that they wanted to make sure that they would get the seat filled before the midterm election, um, and because uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that they know they control the Senate now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they needed to get him through to, to replace Kennedy. Um, and even if this possibly, you know, they had a time in December after the midterm election while they still held the control of the Senate before a new Congress would come in in January, uh, I think there were concerns that uh, it would be hard to make, make the process move as fast, and there were lots of ways that the Democrats could slow down or stop the Senate entirely mm-hmm. to prevent any kind of vote. They, they might have sh- uh, shut down the Senate to prevent anything from happening, which would have prevented the uh, the nomination. I, I think uh, that sounds like you largely agree with my assessment there. Uh, now, I note that, uh, Jed, you signed on to the uh, Thursday op-ed in the New York Times, along with more than 2,400 other law professors calling for the Senate to not confirm Judge Kavanaugh, an extraordinary op-ed. Uh, briefly, uh, why d- uh, do you oppose Kavanaugh's nomination? And what effect will there now be for all of those uh, law professors, uh, who many of whom will take part in cases, like yourself, uh, before a Justice Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court? Sure. I mean, I think there were a number of reasons uh, I opposed. I opposed Judge, uh, Judge Kavanaugh's uh, confirmation to the Supreme Court um, based on having read uh, many of his opinions. Um, it's clear to me, I, I, Senator Collins went on for quite a long time mm-hmm. saying that well, she was assured that uh, that John Roberts, uh, that uh, that Judge Kavanaugh had not made his mind up about Roe v. Wade, but he has signaled about as clearly as one can, uh, it, without actually coming out and saying so, that he would overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, and so that was one aspect. But I'm also really concerned about his decisions that reflect 
um, his interest in dramatically expanding presidential power. Mm. So he would end, he, his opinions suggest that he would end the independence of agencies like the Fed, which would give the president tremendous ability to manipulate currency in, in his financial advantage or for political advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, that is something that Trump has signaled his interest in doing when mm-hmm. the Fed doesn't uh, cooperate with him. But the, but the letter wasn't about that. The letter was about the, the demeanor and his temperament in the confirmation hearing um, after Dr. Ford's testimony. And among all the other things about his, his tone, um, uh, the thing that stuck out for me is where after he alleges that there was a, a conspiracy against him, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, in the next paragraph of his testimony, he said, what goes around comes around. Yeah. Um, now, that, I think, is too clear of an implication of that he's also uh, interested in revenge. And even if that's not what he meant, that was in his prepared remarks. That wasn't just going off and flying off the handle. This was in the prepared section of his testimony. Mm-hmm. That is something that should concern us, that he was so um, tone-deaf to how that, that kind of signal would be taken by anyone. How can anyone have confidence in him uh, to be biased, not be biased mm-hmm. after that kind of remark. I, and and yet, you know, what goes around comes around. Now, uh, folks like you, Jed, and about 2,400 other uh, law professors, uh, you know, are, are on this list of opposing him. I, I, you've got a case, uh, you, you signed on to an amicus brief uh, in this uh, crew case I mentioned. Yep. Uh, what does that mean for folks like uh, you? Will he look at well, that list not, and yeah, hold uh, it against yeah. you? I, I'm not worried about that. I, I've been speaking out against Kavanaugh for months now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm, I think many professors made a decision that this is this is our job. Our job is to read opinions, to to look at a, a judge's background, and to interpret where he would take the court. Um, and so we made it. Many of us made a decision long before this letter to speak uh, to speak out and tell the the public um, and, and, uh, and senators, mm-hmm. um, this is how to understand this record. So one of the articles I wrote was put into the record during the confirmation hearings. Uh, uh, Senator Coons asked Brett Kavanaugh directly about um, this, the questions I was raising about presidential power. Mm-hmm. So I think many of these professors decided that this was more important. This is part of our job. Um, and so I, I'm not worried uh, at this point about what effect that will have down the road. Uh, uh, amicus briefs are supposed to be persuasive, um, and that's all we can. That's all we can expect. Um, I, I, I must say, um, I'm hoping that we persuade other justices. I have to admit, I don't think that Brett Kav- just, that Justice Kavanaugh becomes a justice. Right. Looks like he is. Yeah. I'm not confident that he would be impartial about these issues given his conduct in the testimony. So, uh, frankly, I think. Many of us are hoping that the other justices can keep an open mind. And as a, a legal historian, uh, Jed, how, how historically significant was uh, is it that the fact that the 98-year-old retired Republican-appointed Justice John Paul Stevens, uh, who had previously su- uh, supported Kavanaugh, how significant is it that he came out on Thursday to say that he can no longer support Kavanaugh's appointment to the Supreme Court? You ever seen anything like that? As far as I'm aware, it's completely unprecedented. Uh, I've never heard of. I, I don't think anyone re- who, who saw who was um, commenting on that event had ever seen anything or knew any any event like that from a from a former justice uh, to comment like that. And and keep in mind, he still has a role with the court as a retired justice. Uh, they keep a a clerk for him. 
so he's still around. Really? Um, it really, uh, you know, I, I think another question to ask is, is, you know, another justice who's got to deal with this is Chief Justice John Roberts. Yeah. How is he going to manage this explosive uh, controversy and the, and the unprofessional conduct, the injudicious conduct um, of Judge Kavanaugh, how will he? How will he restore consensus to this court? Um, how will he manage uh, Judge Kavanaugh, um, given that he's, he should have uh, reason to fer- to fear that uh, Judge Kavanaugh cannot be balanced and won't be perceived to be balanced when he's on the court? I think this is going to haunt us all for uh, decades to come. Frankly, uh, all right. Let me uh, let's get to uh, Gamble versus U.S. Here, you argue at Slate. Uh, that the case is not, in fact, about presidential pardon power, but about the Fifth Amendment protection against double jeopardy. Uh, So before we get to how this will or won't affect Donald Trump and friends and the Mueller investigation, uh, explain very briefly the facts of this case uh, and what its uh, current disposition is as uh, the Supreme Court prepares to hear oral arguments in it very soon. So the Fifth Amendment uh, includes a number of protections of criminal defendants' rights, and one of them is the uh, the privilege against uh, double jeopardy. It's to protect against being tried twice for the same crime. And so this is a rule that protects uh, people from getting tried by the same kinds of prosecutors, Mm -hmm. being tried twice by federal or being tried twice by state prosecutors. But there's an exception, a bit of a loophole or a wrinkle, where you can be tried on a by a federal prosecutor in a federal court, and then turn around and be prosecuted by the state, uh, by state court. By, um, and so this happened to Terrence Gamble in 2015 in Alabama. He was uh, found with a gun in violation of the state um, firearms law in Alabama. He served a year in prison for that violation with that gun. But then after he got out of jail, the federal government turned around and prosecuted him for the exact same violation the possession of the gun, just one was about state law and the other one was about federal law, but it was still the same underlying fact. Mm -hmm. That runs against the spirit of double jeopardy. He he was prosecuted and imprisoned for the same act twice. Um, And so the the theory behind it is that the federal government and the state government are two separate sovereigns. This Mm -hmm. is called the dual sovereignty doctrine. Mm -hmm. So let me jump in and explain why the the court could rule that um, this rule should apply both to federal and state prosecution, and you can't back up a state prosecution with a federal or vice versa. That concern, some people have identified, could apply to the Trump case, uh, of the Trump investigation, mm-hmm. because it let's say he pardons Manafort, um, and then there's this rule that you can't try Manafort again for those crimes he was already convicted of. Um, he has no reason to keep cooperating. So I understand where the concern comes from in the abstract, but the point uh, that we make in, in our argument is that it, in, in reality, it's not going to impact the Mueller investigation for one major reason, mm-hmm. which is that many states already have this rule locally. They already have a, uh, a statute that creates that same double jeopardy, a broad double jeopardy protection, um, and it's in the relevant states for the Mueller investigation. It, that's the states that have that are New York, Virginia, Pennsylvania, California. So because the states already have what would be a national rule from Gamble, they have it locally, Mueller has already had to strategize around it in the way that he brought the prosecutions of Manafort, 
Flynn and, uh, and the Southern District's uh, prosecution of Cohen. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is Mueller's already had to deal with this problem, and he's successfully maneuvered around it. All three of those figures, uh, Flynn, Manafort, and Cohen, face enormous state criminal charges if they were to be pardoned, and thus a pardon wouldn't have an effect on them. Uh, meaning uh, the, the charges that they, that they would face at the state level would be substantially different than the charges that uh, those guys have already uh, uh, pled guilty to, essentially, exactly. at the federal level? Exactly. So, for example, Manafort's mm-hmm. plea deal is, a, is a, he pled guilty to a narrow set of crimes, and, and Mueller... Uh, mm-hmm. seems to have been very wise and strategic by making sure to leave plenty of other charges um, left over for state prosecutors in case there's a federal pardon. So, so even if you couldn't retry him on what he was convicted of, uh-huh. um, there's a lot of other acts. So, so imagine the gotcha. story I just told you about Gamble. Yeah. What if he had guns, but he also had, um, uh, let's say, illegal drugs? Mm-hmm. Well, the state could prosecute him on the guns, but the illegal drugs could be uh, uh, prosecuted on the federal level separately. So no so, matter how yeah. this uh, gamble case comes out, uh, you think that there are that there's reason to believe that we shouldn't worry, or at least that uh, those people who think that this is about Donald Trump trying to protect himself, that those are misplaced concerns, essentially. That's right. It would be a very narrow circumstance mm-hmm. that this would have any effect. One point is that um, you know, Manafort, Cohen, and Flynn have already um, cooperated significantly. And now that they've already started, co- now that they've cooperated fully in, in many ways, mm-hmm. you can't unring that bell. Um, you, you, the, the cooperation has been given. Um, so the kind of person where this might have an effect is a, uh, a, a, a co-conspirator of Trump's who committed a very small number of crimes. Mm-hmm. The reason why that would have to happen is because that gives Mueller and his team fewer crimes to sort of strategize with, right. which, which ones to bring. Which, so you'd have to have small no- A, a small number of crimes, then B, um, those crimes would have to apply to a, uh, that, uh, both a state and federal level to be mm-hmm. raising this concern. Um, uh, third, um, they also, those crimes um, would have to uh, be in a state that didn't already have the rule to begin with, right? So the state that Gamble would come in and, and impose the rule, it would have to be a change. We haven't seen that so far. And the fourth circumstance, all these together, yeah. it would have to be someone who is, has so much core information affecting the probe and someone so close to Trump that Trump would finally be willing to use the pardon for the first time, um, that would be the only circumstance in which Gamble would have any impact, and I think that ship has sailed. I don't think there's any uh, co-conspirator who committed so few crimes for this to make a challenge for Mueller, Mm -hmm. but who also had such core central information that Trump would go out and for the first time use pardons this way. Okay. I just think that's very unlikely. And so, all right, maybe we can feel uh, better about that, at least in this regard, when it comes to uh, Brett Kavanaugh sitting on the court and uh, certainly finding most likely with the uh, with his uh, four Republican colleagues. With all of that explained, uh, Judge Sugarman, uh, it's worth noting here that in the Gamble case, we really do see a problem. You write about this, uh, yep. and it's acknowledged by Republicans and civil libertarians alike. You got both Republican Utah Senator Orrin Hatch and the ACLU largely in agreement on this case with, uh, you know, some people like Mr. Gamble being charged twice for the very same crime. That, that, that is a real problem, no? 
That's exactly right. I mean, I think if we take a step back, um, I, I, I completely understand why in this moment of Trump and conspiracy, we are focused on the immediate concern, mm-hmm. of, and we want prosecutors to have lots of discretion and power to wield uh, and put pressure on uh, co-conspirators. But if we take a step back and think about what happened to Mr. Gamble, um, it, it seems like this is a major problem for prosecutors uh, to violate the spirit of, of double jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And we've got prosecutorial overreach and the problem of mass incarceration. Why, why was it necessary to uh, imprison Mr. Gamble twice for the same basic fact? Mm-hmm. Um, so the larger point here is that you know, we shouldn't be distracted from the larger values that Gamble presents, and maybe as, as liberals or libertarians or people concerned with, with uh, over-incarceration, um, we should embrace Gamble, not fear it. You, you do also cite uh, the fact that the ACLU legal director ha- does have some concern that doing away with this uh, the so-called doctrine of dual sovereignty that you explained, uh, allowing both state and federal government to charge crimes that violate both state and federal laws, that that has the potential downside uh, regarding certain civil rights cases. Why would that be? Right. Well, I, I think well, an example of this would be the... Um the Rodney King episode, mm-hmm. the Rodney King beating in, by the police, where the police officers, and this was um, uh, was that 1992, um, where the police officers were first prosecuted for the excessive use of force in California in state court. A state jury uh, acquitted them, mm-hmm. and then the federal government came in and prosecuted them for civil rights violations. Um, and that kind of thing can happen, you know, it's happened throughout American history, where a state prosecution breaks down um, and fails, it's a Acquitted, and you want to make sure that federal civil rights law can still be applied. W- one observation I would make is that the Mueller investigation has shown us that a prosecutor can um, be careful to pick out certain facts and prosecute them on one level, and then if that prosecution fails, there's the backup of looking at other facts. If, if a civil rights violation is mm-hmm. really egregious or, or a major problem, there are surely several different ways to prosecute it. Um, so learning from Mueller, I think federal prosecutors could make sure to pick and choose which facts to bring, mm. and that might leave a backup for states and just in case. Very, quick, um, very quickly, I know I have to get you out of here, Jed. Uh, how does uh, Kavanaugh's seating uh, at the, uh, as, as the fifth right-wing justice on the court here, how does it uh, bear, you think, on the constitutional emoluments uh, complaint by Crew and the uh, amicus brief that you have filed in support of that case? Is that bad news for, uh, for your argument, Jed? I'm not sure. In fact, I, this is part of why it was important for us to write our amicus brief as historians. We, our, our arguments are really pitched to conservative originalists as well as, as liberal originalists. History, the, the background and context of, of the emoluments clause is, is crucial for understanding how it gets applied, what, why it's relevant now. Um, and so we jumped in not knowing that we'd have more originalists on the court, but we, we really think that, uh, um, that the arguments that have already succeeded in, in a couple courts uh, based on the history should continue to be persuasive. Um, so, so I'm... I'm more confident about the emoluments issue, about what the emoluments clause means. The downside for us, for the case, is the, uh, is the standing question. Conservative justices on the court are far, far more restrictive of who has standing as a plaintiff to sue. So my concern is not so much about what the, what the emoluments clause means in terms of its interpretation. I'm more concerned that Kavanaugh might be a fifth vote 
to say that the plaintiffs in the case, whether the hotels and restaurants mm-hmm. or the um, uh, state attorneys general or the members of Congress who have brought the suit, don't have standing mm-hmm. to make this claim. So, so that would be my concern. Well, we will uh, bother you again to join us uh, as that case moves forward, no doubt. And I'll also uh, hope to get to it uh, today. No time, though. I'll, I'll uh, bring you back and uh, harangue you about the notion of Democrats adding two seats to the U.S. Supreme Court or more uh, at some point if they ever get back both houses of Congress and the White House to get the majority back on the court that I believe is rightfully theirs. But we'll hold that for another day. Judge, <laughs> Judge. We'll talk more. Judge Sugarman, find his uh, his work over at Slate.com and on his own blog, Sugarblog.com. Sugar, in this case, is spelled S-H-U-G-E-R, Sugarblog.com, and on the Twitters at Jed Shug, S-H-U-G. Thanks, Jed. Greatly appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. You bet. Okay, we'll uh, take a quick break, uh, reconnoiter here, and um, some. Uh, I want to get to, I've been trying to get to some listener mail here. That has to do with, um, well, the one solution that I continue to point to always, constantly. That would be elections. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back with some of your listener mail right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. If you're lost in a phone or you're sinking like a stone, carry on. May your past be the sound of your feet upon the ground. Carry on. Carry on. Carrying on right here on the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com, carrying on with you. Uh, very quickly, uh, a few listener emails. Uh, Robin in Minneapolis, listening via AM 950 KTNF. I don't have time to read your especially kind words this week. Uh, too long to read on air uh, right now, but I want to mention how much those words, in lieu of a donation at bradblog.com slash donate, uh, are uh, how much they are very much appreciated right now. Kind so words go a long way. A toss out uh, to Robin. Megan R. says, regarding, uh, this is uh, in response to our Thursday show, in which we noted that thousands of voters in Texas who signed up to vote via vote.org on last week's uh, National Voter Registration Day, instead of doing so in person, that those folks in Texas who signed up via vote.org are not properly registered to vote since Texas has no online registration and refuses to recognize those who signed up via vote.org last week. Megan R. writes in via Facebook to say, Brad, I'm listening to your podcast about vote.org. I work in a library in Columbus, Ohio. 
and had a customer come in the other day asking for help with his voter registration. He registered to vote with Vote.org and received an email asking him to click on a link to complete his registration. When you click on the link that's supposed to take you to a form to print out, it took him to a link for Sirius XM Radio. She says, I couldn't believe it. Well, I could, but I was shocked. Luckily, we have paper voter registration forms that I was able to give him a to give him and told him to delete that email. Thought I should let you know about that. Thanks for all you and Desi do. My dad and I listen to you every day and I don't know what I would do with you. I think she means without you. Uh, keep on keeping on, she says. Uh, thank you, Megan. Uh, if you're registering to vote, do it in person if you can or at least in a state which offers uh, online voter registration, do it via the Secretary of State or County website rather than via a third-party app, if at all possible. And yes, keep checking your registrations at those sites to make sure that it is accurate. We don't need any more surprises than we are already going to have on November 6th. Speaking of which, Carrie A. writes also via Facebook to say... Um, from uh, he's writing from Missouri, where uh, early absentee voting is apparently now underway. They don't have actual early voting in the show me state. I believe you have to give an excuse as to why you must vote early absentee. Um, and I believe uh, this report that he forwards to me from someone else on Facebook would be the first official report that I know of of touchscreen vote flipping. In the general election, yes, it's beginning again. Uh, Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill, as you know, is in a tough re-election bid against Missouri Republican Attorney General Josh Hawley. Real Clear Politics calls it a toss-up race. Hawley is leading McCaskill by 0.4 points, according to the uh, Real Clear Politics average. So, yes, every vote counts, as we always tell you, and we mean it. Uh, anyway, he forwards uh, a note. Today I voted at the St. Louis County Northwest Plaza location. I touched the screen for Claire and a check mark appeared. When I reviewed my votes, it showed that I had voted for Holly. I went back to change the vote and touched the Claire box and it registered for Holly. This happened four times and then finally registered for Claire McCaskill. I called the poll worker over and he said that he'd report it. Be aware and review your votes. Pat uh, Price, someone on um, on uh, Facebook, uh, wrote, uh, I would say, hey, especially if you're in Missouri, you're allowed to vote on a paper ballot if you want. You don't have to use those goddamn 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. I would urge people to not use them unless you must. Know your rights when you go in to vote. Know that in Missouri, you can ask for a hand-marked paper ballot. Because, yeah, every vote's going to count. It's a toss-up election in the Senate in, uh, in Missouri this year. A very close one right now. Finally, last weekend in Texas, uh, in what is being described as the largest campaign rally ever held in the state, roughly 55,000 people crammed together at Auditorium Shores in Austin for the Turnout for Texas rally. 
Watching as uh, U.S. Congressman Beto O'Rourke sang On the Road Again with country music legend Willie Nelson, according to the El Paso Times. O'Rourke is himself in a shockingly close race to unseat Republican Senator Ted Cruz in the Lone Star State. And uh, Willie Nelson treated the crowd to a new short song. It'll uh, help us get out of today's show. (laughs) Go, Willie. Uh, That seems mighty appropriate on a day like this. Here's a new song we want to spring on y'all tonight. Take it home where you spread it around. If you don't like who's in there, vote them out. That's what election day is all about. And the biggest gun we got is called the ballot box. If you don't like who's in there, vote them out. Vote them out. Vote them out. And when they're gone, we'll sing and dance and shout. And she'll bring some new ones in, and they will start the show again. And if you don't like who's in there, vote them out. My thanks to our producer today, Desi Doyen. My guest today, Fordham University's Jed Sugarman, And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can also drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. And my thanks to those of you who support what we try to do here every day by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And if it's a bunch of clowns you voted in, election day is coming around again. And if you don't like it now, you can change it anyhow. And if you don't like who's in there, vote them out. Vote them out. Vote them out. Vote them out. And when they're gone, we'll sing and dance and shout. Start the show again and bring some new ones in. And if you don't like who's in there, vote them out. Vote them out. Vote them out. And when we're done, we'll sing and dance and shout. Then we'll bring some new ones in and we'll start the show again. But if you don't like who's in there, vote them out. And if you don't like who's in there, vote them out. Thank you, Texas. Thank you, Beto. All the way, buddy. We love y'all. Thank you. And thank you, Willie. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Vote them out. Vote them out. And when they're gone, we'll sing and dance and shout. And she'll bring some new ones in, and they will start the show again. And if you don't like who's in there, vote them out. <laughs>